You could be seated. Well, what's wrong with this world? Have you ever found yourself asking that? What's wrong with this world? Perhaps especially in times of civil unrest or racial tensions or geopolitical standoffs or disease. What's wrong with this world? Sometimes we ask, what's wrong with them? Whoever them might be. What's wrong with that person? Maybe it's a, a gossipy, divisive coworker or a persistently antagonistic neighbor, or a bully at school, or a difficult family member. What's wrong with them? And sometimes we dare ask, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? We don't like to ask that question. We don't come to it lightly. We may not ask that of ourselves frequently, but there are times when we ask it unavoidably. Maybe our mouth has gotten us in trouble once again. We have hurt someone that we love once again. Our temper has complicated a relationship once again. What is wrong with me, we say in frustration. But what if those kinds of questions are actually more relevant and could be more prevalent than we think? What if those kinds of questions, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with me, aren't just relevant for the really bad times and the really bad people in our own very worst moments? The story is told that the Times of London in the early 1900s asked prominent thinkers to answer the question in an essay, what's wrong with the world? And most responded with lengthy philosophical answers about this or that economic problem or social ill or cultural phenomenon. But G.K. Chesterton wrote back a very short answer to that question, what is wrong with the world? He simply said, Dear Sir, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I am. Of course, he was speaking for us all, whether we like it or not. He was speaking theologically, not just behaviorally or relatively. And our text this morning in Genesis 3 not only supports Chesterton's analysis of the world and us in it, it also tells us why things are that way, why things are wrong in this world. It tells us how we got here, and we call it the fall, the fall. Before we read the story of the fall in Genesis 3, let's just recall briefly what came before in the book of Genesis and what we've seen so far over these previous four weeks, or even just where we left off last week at the end of chapter 2. We left Adam and Eve in the garden within God's perfectly created, ordered world. All was right. There was peace. And beauty 
and order and purpose. There was shalom, as we say. Adam and Eve were right with God. They were right with each other. They were right with the created order. The one thing in chapter 2 that was said to be not good was quickly remedied by God with a perfect mate for Adam, and he celebrated her with song in verse 23. And the final words of chapter 2 show us the first couple's intimacy and oneness and peace and complementarity. Just look down in your Bibles. Verse 25 of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What could go wrong? Well, let's read on. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent Deceive me, and I ate. Well, the passage goes on from there, but that'll be enough for us to tackle this Sunday. Now, let me say up front that though this story has mysteries about it, some curiosities, if not oddities to it, it really happened. It really happened. We've got to say that. Some may read of a talking serpent a tree that seems to represent more than just a tree, nakedness that seems to represent more than just bare skin, and then some are tempted to run from the possible mystery of those things to think that the whole thing is an allegory. But mysteries and a few oddities aside, this was a real historical event in a real historical place with real historical people. 
In fact, I've been delaying addressing this matter until now. I haven't been sure exactly where to put it, but it's something that has to be said at some point in a study of Genesis. Here it is. I think that we as Christians must hold tight to a historical Adam and Eve. A historical Adam and Eve who were the first human couple made in God's image. Why? Why is that necessary? Well, Adam is included among genealogies in the Bible, like those in 1 Chronicles 1 and Luke 3, along with other real historical people. Luke 3 calls Adam the son of God. As it backs up the genealogy, father of, father of, father of, you get to Adam, he's the son of God, suggesting that he didn't have a natural human father like everyone else in the genealogy. He was the first man. And Paul, in two different lengthy passages, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, he unpacks a whole theology of Jesus as the second Adam, the federal representative of a whole new redeemed humanity who's like and unlike the first Adam, who was a federal representative of the human race that plunged us into sin and ruin. And both Adam and Jesus must be historical real people who did historical real things for that theology to work. So both Adam and Eve are real historical people. We must keep that. We must hold tight to that. I think the story of the Bible and the gospel itself is jettisoned if we abandon it. But with that aside, let's dig into this real and important story in the first half of Genesis 3. I think three C words will help us mark the turns in the story. And the first is conversation. This will take the longest of the three because it has the most going on in it. There's the conversation with the serpent, verses 1 to 5. Now who or what is this serpent? Verse 1 simply says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's not exactly a thorough introduction, is it? And if this were all the information we had in the Bible on this serpent, we wouldn't know that much. But this is just the beginning of the Bible's references to this creature who is opposed to God. Revelation 12, verse 9, it happens again in Revelation 20, they both piece together all the identities and even nicknames of this guy, the serpent, not to mention his minions. Revelation 12, verse 9 says, The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. 
So the best we can surmise is that Satan was, at first, created as a good and upright and powerful angel. But at some point before Genesis 3, he rebelled against God and led a rebellion, taking other angels with him. A few verses before, in Revelation 12, in poetic language, it says that his tail swept a third of the stars, probably angels, a third of the angels out of heaven. Ezekiel 28 is also probably a relevant passage here. Why did I say probably? Well, because if you read it, you can read it later on your own, you'd find there even a heading in your Bible most likely that says that this is about the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, or the prince of Tyre. On one level, it is clearly about the king of Tyre who was a real king in Ezekiel's day. But the language is so far beyond what would fit any human king. It describes the fall of the king of Tyre, but it uses angelic language. And hence it more than hints at Satan's fall from heaven. Let's see if you hear it for yourself. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. That's not just some king of Tyre. It would seem that this is the untold story of Satan's origins before Genesis 3. And it would seem that this fallen angelic being, later known as Satan, in Genesis 3 has somehow embodied a serpent. And yet even Genesis 3 itself tells us some important details. Not enough, but some. Notice the serpent was created by God. He too is one that the Lord God had made. And therefore this serpent isn't God. He's not another God. He's not an equal but opposite power. He's not God, but he is crafty. Most crafty. He's shrewd. He's clever. His cleverness, a word which could be used for good, like the shrewd manager of the parables. Uh, here, his shrewdness is used for subversiveness and evil and deception. How crafty he is. 
this dialogue between the snake and the woman demonstrates his multi-layered strategy for temptation and sin. And we'll just walk through it. And just note that it's multi-layered. How does humanity enter into sin? Well, not with a sudden explosion of evil and rebellion, but subtly and in stages. It begins with merely a question about God's word in verse 1. Did God actually say, asks the serpent? He starts with a question. Not yet an accusation. Not yet an invitation to break from God. Just a question. Just planting the seed of doubt out there. And what was questioned? The word of God. God's word was questioned. Did God actually say? This tells us so much about what's important for us, what's vital to us, what's at stake in this world. You want to know what's important and vital? Look at what Satan goes after in the garden. Where does he attack? What does he question? He questions God's word. God's word already came before in the middle of chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God gave the word to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Apparently Satan heard this and knew this, and this is what he was questioning and toying with. This is what he moves on to twist. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What a difference a word makes at a moment like this. God so graciously and generously said in chapter 2, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden save only one. And what does the serpent say? I heard that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The serpent is making an accusation that God is overly strict, a killjoy. He's just about nose. And he puts words in God's mouth. By the way, imagine as we work through this that God's word is like a line, a horizontal line. And we don't want to add to it, and we don't want to take away from it. In fact, we can't. There there are some key passages in the Bible we could go to, not least at the end of Revelation. You don't add to those words. It's really a big deal. We're not to say more than God has said, and we're not to say or do less than God has said in his word. We're to stick to the line of his word. And so far in our study of Genesis 3, God's word, the line, has been questioned, like it's fuzzy when it's not, and it has been added to, gone above, How does Eve respond? Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
And that's a pretty good corrective. Pretty good. It's not as expressive as God put it in chapter 2. Remember, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. She corrects the serpent, but not with the expressive joy and generosity that God put it when he first gave it. But on the whole, she is correcting the serpent's deceptive misquoting, and she's facing his question with an assertion. And she goes on in verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, she's gotten much of it right. For some reason, though, she follows the serpent's lead in how she refers to God. Our passage, the narrator, Moses, has been calling God Lord God, Yahweh God. His covenant name, his personal name. Satan calls him simply God, Elohim. And she follows suit. You'd think she'd know better. And she adds to God's word. Neither shall you touch it, she says to the serpent. But God never said that. He said, don't eat it. He didn't say, don't touch it. On one level, we can sympathize with her. We've all done that. It is safer to tell the little kids to not play past the sidewalk, even though there's still three more feet of easement before there's the curb and then the road. That's safe. On one level, we can sympathize, but on another level... God simply didn't say to not touch, and she is putting that squarely on God's lips, saying he said something he didn't say. She's elevating God's standard as if it were her prerogative to do so. And perhaps it's even betraying the slightest bit of resentment and negativity. You can't even touch it. That's all very dangerous. It's still dangerous today. We call it legalism. Going beyond God's word, thinking that it's God's word. Now let's take a step back here for just a moment and consider how Eve might have responded from the get-go with this talking serpent. She might have said, What the heck are you doing here, you talking serpent? What is with you? Why are you in the garden? This is our garden. Get out of here, you blasphemous snake. I am not having this conversation. Get out of here, or you're crushed. Remember the creation mandate from Genesis 1, back in verse 26? God made man in his own image. He gave them dominion over fish and birds, livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing. Remember as well that the garden is a garden temple for God's presence and for God's worship. And God made Adam to be like a priest in this garden temple. And God was 
God appointed him there to work it and to keep it, to protect it. So how's the creation mandate going in Genesis 3? How's the priestly work going? How pure is this garden temple? Not very. Eve's engagement with the serpent, like he's the teacher, is all upside down and backwards. Even though she's holding the line somewhat, she's still way too passive. She's along for the ride. She doesn't have the steering wheel. And that's just what the serpent wants. He just wants more ear time. He just wants more time to work on her, to work her down, to desensitize her. And so then he ups the ante in verse 4 with an outright denial. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The serpent has moved from questioning God's word to twisting and adding to God's word and now outright denying God's word. The first doctrine to be denied in the Bible is divine judgment. We should take note of that. We shouldn't be surprised when we hear others do the same today. We shouldn't get tempted by fresh attempts to dismiss or downplay God's final judgment because it's not new. It's as old as the garden and as old as the serpent. Again, think of where Satan goes attacking. God's word, God's goodness, God's judgment. There's even an outright denial of God's goodness found in verse 5. God knows, the serpent says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. You see what he's saying? He's saying to the woman, do you see what God has been keeping you from? God has been holding you back from good things. He's been holding you back from learning more and experiencing more and being enlightened, and having growth, and being more God-like. His prohibitions are there to hold you back and to keep you from being a better you. Now, as we'll see as this unfolds, there is an element of truth to what the serpent says in verse 5. When Adam and Eve sin, their eyes are opened but not like they hoped. When they sin, they will know good and evil, but in a, a new and horrible way. And in a sense, they will know good and evil, and hence they will be more like God in a sense. But all this is why this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is called what it's called. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To partake of the tree was to experience good and evil, but not exactly like God does. There's knowing good and evil from the outside. That's what God knows it as. But there's knowing good and evil from the inside, and that's what Eve is about to find out. 
It's like the difference between a cancer patient knowing something about cancer from the inside and their oncologist knowing some things about cancer but from the outside. It's a half-truth. But as J.I. Packer said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole untruth. Now, all that's my first C. Let's get after it. Number two, the choice to rebel. That's, we've seen the conversation and then the choice to rebel finally hits in verse 6 as the narrative slows way down. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that is, it was nourishing and healthy, she thought. And when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, pleasant to look at. And when she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it it makes smart, it, it makes wise, it enlightens. She took of its fruit and she ate. Here is a window into what sin is. Maybe you're not a Christian yet, and you hear Christians talk about sin, and you just don't get it. You think, what is sin anyway? Is it like disobeying parents? It is kind of like that. Yeah, it's disobeying God in word, deed, or thought, not unlike children disobeying their clear, uh, the clear and reasonable rules of their parents. But it's so much more than that when it comes to our relationship to God. Sin is de-godding God. It's not possible, of course. We can't de-god him. But that's what sin says. That's what it seeks. You can be like God, determining good and evil for yourself. Eve saw that it was good. And those words, saw and good, should be ringing in our ears still from chapter 1 because seven times God saw what he made and it was good. And here's Eve taking that prerogative upon herself. She sees and she calls it good. And she ate. She didn't trust God to tell her what was good and to give her all that she needed for her good. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in God's wisdom, was put there in the garden as a symbol of his people's obedience and trust. It was a litmus test to see if they'd obey and trust. Would God's ways be trusted as best? Would God's abundant generosity and goodness be enough? Would God's word be heeded as final? Would God's warning be sufficient? Would God be their God? Or would they seek to be their own gods? 
Sin is the deifying of the sinner. Sin is making oneself out to be the lawmaker. It's autonomy from our maker and covenanting God. It's attempting to dethrone God and put ourselves on his throne. It's mutiny. It's treason against God. It's kind of a big deal. And that's what you and I do. And that's what Eve first did. And where was her husband in all this? Right there. Did you catch that? He was with her. She took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. It is breathtaking to learn that Adam was there only as a passive, silent observer. His wife was encountering a smooth-talking, blasphemous serpent, and he did nothing. His wife only partially held the line of God's word, and he did nothing. His wife stared at the fruit longingly and curiously, and then she reached out her hand, and her husband did nothing. And she took and she ate and he did nothing. And she gave to him and he did nothing but take and eat. The devastating consequences begin to emerge immediately in verse 7. The eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The serpent was half right. Their eyes are opened. Not to more good and beautiful things, not to more enlightenment, not to a newfound freedom, but to guilt and shame. They were literally naked and physically naked, but it represented so much more than just nakedness. Before sin, they were naked and unashamed, and now they're naked and full of shame because they're full of guilt. They now have embarrassment with each other. They now have things to hide from each other. They cover up. They're, they're vulnerable, but, but not in a good way. Their instinct to cover up with fig leaves is both reasonable and absurd. How is it both? Well, it is. Listen, it's reasonable because they do rightly have shame and guilt. Things are now broken. And there isn't any worth in pretending that you don't have guilt or shame or nakedness or embarrassing things to hide from others. On the other hand, it's pathetic because fig leaf loincloths can't possibly be the solution to this big of a problem. The problem is bigger than any superficial, partial body covering could ever provide. After all, it was on this day that they would begin to, what? Die. 
God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You say, well, wait, they didn't die on that day. What gives? Well, on that day, they did die spiritually. They were dead eternally before God, if God's grace didn't intervene. And it was on that day that they began to die physically. And many hundreds of years later, they would indeed die. And that's why we all die. The wages of sin is death. There is a payment for sin, which is death. It's broken into this world, and we are all the recipients of it. Adam and Eve's sin plunged all of humanity into sin and death. We are all born sinners because of this Adamic heritage. We call this original sin. Not just the original sin, the one back there, but the one that has affected and infected us all. We don't all share the same kinds of sins. We don't all have the uh, same amount of sin necessarily. Some of us are better or worse than others, true, but we are all sinners. We're all in the same lot. We all sin. And this explains our fallen world. What's wrong with the world? The whole world is bent and broken, and us in it. But you might be thinking, if you haven't yet already, maybe even knowing this passage was coming, you've been wondering, but why did God allow it to happen? Why did God allow sin to enter the world in the first place? Why? Well, there are some theological theses that we can nail down and work around, like... It's not because God is a bad God. It's not because he's the author of sin. Neither does he tempt anyone, says James 1. He didn't create evil, and he didn't make Adam and Eve to sin. We can also say, though, that God is sovereign over everything. Not a bird falls to the ground, not a hair falls off your head, and no angel falls from heaven apart from your Father's will. Mysterious to us, but it, it is true in the Bible that God is both sovereign, planning everything from the beginning, and also untainted by any sin, guilt, or coercion. Jonathan Edwards, he suggested that we distinguish between God ordaining sin by permitting it. He ordained sin to happen, meaning he allowed it, and, on the other hand, God ordaining good by causing it. One he permits, one he causes. Edwards uses the analogy of how the sun brings light and warmth to our planet with its presence. When we can see it, when it's out, as we call it, when it's day. But, Edwards says, the same sun indirectly brings about darkness and cold when it drops below the horizon. The sun doesn't directly cause the cold or the darkness. It's the absence of it that causes it. And that's one way to think of God's righteous sovereignty over sin. 
But why? You, you say, I'm not satisfied with that. Why? Why do you allow it? We could cite free will as a possible explanation, especially before the fall. After the fall, it gets a little more complicated. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But you can say, well, before the fall, there's free will. Okay, but that doesn't exactly get you off the hook, does it? Because God could have just kept them from it. God could have just put up the, the child's pen of morality and kept them from this. But he didn't. And so let me run through quickly some whys to this. Why God allowed this fall to happen. One, our God has designed a plan to shine forth all of his attributes, not just the sweet ones. Behold the goodness and severity of our God. Two, in his wisdom, God has planned to glorify his son in the redemption of sinners. And he's done this to get the son the most glory possible. Three, you or I would not have come up with a better plan for his glory and for his people's good. Fourth, just think of the realities that we would not know in a world that was good but only good, never fallen. You wouldn't know what grace is. You wouldn't know mercy. You wouldn't know forgiveness. You wouldn't know restoration. You wouldn't know anything about waiting for the, the justice to come in the end like we live in now. And fifth, we don't know why. If those four were not enough, then just grab hold of this. We don't know. We don't know why. At some point, you got to land on Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways. There's the conversation. There's the choice. Thirdly, there's the confrontation with the creator. The confrontation. They have things to hide from each other. That's verse 7. And then in verse 8, they hide from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And there is a confrontation coming. But it is a gracious confrontation. A gracious one. God did not obliterate them. God did not Banish them to some wilderness like Mars. God did not leave them alone and just detach himself from them. No, God sought them out. Confrontation was needed for restoration. And so this confrontation will be hard and humbling, but it will be helpful and good. And this is just who our God is. This is how he operates. This is his instinct. It's to seek out sinners. This is how it was in the beginning, and that's how he still works today. So verse 9, the Lord called to the man, where are you? Not because he didn't know. <laughs> this is all for Adam's benefit. Just like the serpent was drawing out Eve to get her to sin. Here's our God drawing out Adam to get him towards confession. 
Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. No admission. No admission of guilt here. I, I was afraid. I was naked. I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Once again, of course, God knows. But he's patiently walking his son through the steps of acknowledgement, confession, and repentance. But sin has already entered this world. And it doesn't just go back after one sin. Sin has entered this world and we see its effects in verse 12. The man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And here the blame game begins. It's certainly not the last, but it is the first. He blames the woman, and then he blames God for giving him the woman. And then she follows suit in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I So what shall we do with our guilt? Cover it up? Try to hide it? Blame others? Or bring it to a merciful God? The latter is the best and wisest option. Adam and Eve teach you here what's wrong with this world and what's wrong with you and with me. And by negative example, they show you what not to do with your sin. Cover it. Hide it. Run from it. Deny it. Blame others. David said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away but then I confess to you and you forgave the iniquity of my sin how does God forgive how how does God forgive well if you've been in a church like ours much at all you know the answer to that a couple weeks ago we worded it as Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the one that conquers the serpent perfectly and successfully and finally. 1 John 3, verse 8, just summarizes this whole scene from, from Genesis to, to the New Testament like this. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the Bible. And you can see that happen in Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4. There, it is clearly um, a parallel to the garden scene. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan, not in the plush garden, but in the rough wilderness it's a chess match of Bible as Satan quotes this Bible out of context and Jesus responds 
holding the line of Scripture and never giving in. He was the true and better Adam. Remember a couple weeks ago, we read from Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned, And just as one trespass, Adam's, led to the condemnation of all men, so now one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, finally righteous, settled. Not because they are righteous, but because they have a federal representative that did it for them. Their first father got them into a heap of trouble and all of humanity with us. But Jesus came as our brother, the second Adam, taking on the temptations of Satan at his best. And Jesus won. And we receive his righteousness as a gift if we simply believe that he has it to offer you. So you come bringing your sin. I don't even know how many. I don't know how bad it is. I trust you do. You take care of it. That's why he died on the cross. And you hold out your empty hands and you say, will you give me your righteousness, all of it? Will you have the Father treat me like I am the righteous son that you were for me? It's a blessed transaction. It's called the gospel. It's what we need. It's our only hope. And I I hold it out to you today, praying that you would hand off your sin to God and you would hold out empty hands to receive the righteousness of Christ. That you would join with us in a whole new humanity. I know it looks like we're just... We're just poor fools. You know, we're just Albuquerqueans. We're just like you. We are. That's true. And yet, in this unseen realm, Christians are part of a whole new humanity humanity that will only be fully realized in a whole new heaven and new earth someday when Jesus returns. We hold that out to you today. Christian, I have uh, several bullet points to, to bring this home to you. I see seven on my list. What shall I do? (laughs) Well, here they go. Seven real fast. Thank God for being such a gracious God to you. A God who sought you out when you were on the run in hiding. Keep holding tight to Christ. Your only hope. Your only righteousness. Keep bringing your sin to the light. This is how you came in. This is how you stay good with them. Keep bringing your sin to the light, painful as it is. Keep trusting that God's ways are best. Best for you. What you need. This is the good life, his ways. Beware of the schemes of the devil. Oh, he is tricky. 
2 Corinthians 2 says, let's not be outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his schemes. Let's not be ignorant of how he works and how sin works and how temptation works. Hold tight to God's word, people. Hold tight to it. Keep the line. Watch out for tinkering. And hold tight in God's world. Fallen world, yes, but God's world. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, yes, we thank you for your word and for the grand plan. We trust you for what we don't get. We ask you to reveal yourself more to us, more of your love, more, more of our need, and more of your abundant grace. May we rest in all that you are for us as creator, redeemer, and friend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and respond. This is my father's world, and to my listening ear, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world.
Bible tells us what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with me, and what's wrong with you. And the Bible tells us what can make it right. Who can make it right? Jesus, who died, he shall be satisfied. One day, heaven and earth will be one. Right now, as believers, we live in the here and the not yet, the now and the not yet. But there is day, a day coming when Jesus makes all things new, when he puts all things aright. And so we invite you, if you're not yet a believer, you're not yet a Christian, get yourself aright with him today by his grace and come under his good and sweet rule. Let us know how we can help. Drew mentioned that he'd be up front after the service. I will as well. Other pastors will be here as well. Let us know if we can pray for you or answer any questions you might have about this Jesus. Otherwise, we'll see you next week, 10 a.m. You're dismissed. Jesus is mine.